Matthew 21. Matthew 21, I believe we'll have uh, this morning and then another message uh, in chapter 21. <clears throat> I know most of you have been with us in this study uh, of chapter 21, but I'm going to just briefly uh, recap. So the basic idea here is this is what we're going to call the, the third day, right? So this is kind of day three of the Passion Week. Um, I'm not going to take a hard line on, on exactly what day it is. Um, what we're about to read might be Tuesday. Some would offer that it is Wednesday. So I'm going to be reading in a moment, verses 23 to 32. So what has happened? Day one was the triumphal entry. This is where Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He purposely rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by what we could safely guess would be literally tens of thousands, tens and tens of thousands of people who are crying out praise uh, to him. You can see that earlier in chapter 21. He goes into the city on day one, looks around the temple, but heads back out and spends the evening, the night, in a nearby village called Bethany. Day two, he comes back. He's hungry early in the morning. He sees in the distance a fig tree that is in bloom. I can't re-preach last week's message, but fig trees at that time in mid-April should not be in bloom because the leaves and the fruit come about the same time, which should have been about a month later. But he, he's hungry. He sees a fruit tree, a fig tree in bloom, which should indicate it should have fruit. As he approaches it, it has no fruit. So because it is being hypocritical, this tree is sending a hypocritical message. Again, it's not like leaves and later on down the road, here comes the fruit. No, this one, it's probably the only one around that would have had leaves, but it has no fruit. And because it's sending a hypocritical message, Jesus curses the fig tree. And we talked about what that symbolizes last week. Then he moves on in, still day two. That's on the way. He moves on into the temple and he cleanses the temple because there are people who have set up shop who are selling animals for sacrifices at exorbitant rates. They are exploiting worshipers. They know the worshipers are coming. They know they're going to offer sacrifices. And so they have a deal made out with those who are going to inspect the animals. The Levites will inspect the animals. They're going to reject pretty much everything unless those have been bought within the temple at this jacked up rate. Jesus comes in and sees that. He comes in and sees that those who are changing money because you would, if you're a male, Jewish male, 20 years old and up, you would offer an offering for the temple tax. But it had to be in a specific kind of money. And so these people were changing out foreign currency, Greek and Roman coins for the acceptance coins and they were hitting them up again for an exorbitant high fee of an exchange rate. Jesus sees all this merchandising, exploiting God's people and worshipers, and he runs them all out of the temple. He called, we call it the cleansing of the temple. That's day two. Then he goes back to Bethany that evening. Day three is where we're at. This morning, they go walk back by the fig tree that he has cursed. Peter and the disciples acknowledge, like, Lord, look, now, not that it took 24 hours for this thing to wither up down to the root, but they're amazed. Look at what the same tree. It worked. What you said to this worked against the tree. This was last week's message. Day three, that morning, again, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 21, you'll not see this on the screen, but look at 2121. Jesus, this is massive, massive text that we finished on last week. This is the morning of day three. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith, like, Lord, look how powerful your word is. 
He says, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, there's the key, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen to you. And if that wasn't massive enough, then we have verse 22. Jesus says, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And we acknowledged Two main points, not re-preaching that, we acknowledge there are two dangers with that. Be careful that you don't just lift that out by itself and isolate it as though that's the only thing the Bible says about prayer. But also don't minimize what the Bible says about prayer here in Jesus' words. This This has been affecting my life this week. I've still been trying to implement verses 21 and 22 into my life. After that, so Jesus gives these powerful promises. Now he heads into the temple and he finds his way back into an area where he is teaching, and that's where we're going to pick up our story, day three. Here we go, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests, so picture them, they're the chief priests. They're not just Levites. They're of the house and lineage and descendants of Aaron, the high priest. And so they would have the garb on, especially during Passover week. They're going to have the garb, knowing that they really like to be noticed. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people. So these are not so much that previous group. These are the most influential common people in all the land. Put them together along with the scribes of the Pharisees. And these two groups, by the way, the scribes of the Pharisees are there. Mark and Luke tell us that they're there as well. And so this group's going to come up and approach Jesus. Guys, this group makes up what's called the Sanhedrin, a 71-member panel uh, almost like we have Congress, right? So we have the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so this is that group in Israel that would rule all under Rome. Rome lets Israel have some self-rule, and they would line up 71 in a semicircle when they were trying a case, and in the middle would be the high priest who presides over this. So here's what's happening. The chief priests and the elders of the people, then they don't have the official garb, but they're going to have the nicest clothes because they're wealthy. I mean, these are the elite of the, of the elite in the land. So the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. All this, I believe, is by design. They want him to start teaching. They want him to draw a crowd. You'll see there'll be a crowd here in a moment. So they came up to Jesus as he was teaching, interrupt him, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So here they come. Jesus comes in. They acknowledge the fig tree, gives that massive promise, comes on in. He starts teaching. And preaching, people are flocking to him, great crowds. Now they come up. They've been stewing all night long, no doubt, because of what's been going on. They're angry. They've got a plan. This is part of their plan. They're going to come up and very carefully worded question. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. They have a question, by what authority? He says, Tell you what, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. Verse 25 is his question. The baptism of John. So there's a crowd of people watching Jesus talk to however many people are in this group of chief priests and elders. Here's his question. The baptism of John, John the Baptist, his ministry. We're going to say that baptism of John is code for the ministry of John the Baptist, who's already dead, had his head cut off by Herod. Jesus says, the baptism of John, from where did it come? You answer my question, I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Basically what he's saying is, is John the Baptist sanctioned? Was his ministry ordained by God? 
Or is it just kind of man-concocted? Is it something he just did on his own? Kind of flamboyant, phallic-centric, dynamic, saw an opportunity, wants to be famous, goes out and starts preaching real hard, becomes famous. Is that all it was, just total man-made? Or was it from heaven or from man? Watch in the middle of verse 25. And they, discuss, they call a timeout. Okay, so here's the debate. Like, we need a timeout. We've got we to gotta confer. <laughs> so they go over and confer, verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, can I add this in? You know, if we say from heaven, if we say John the Baptist's ministry, the baptism of John is from heaven, sanctioned by God, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But, so we don't need to do that, but if we say it's from man, John just kind of appointed himself, he's really not God's man. If we say it's just from man, we're afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they're kind of put in a dilemma here by Jesus' question. So verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. We don't know. By the way, they have an opinion. They reserve their opinion. You can tell what their opinion is. But they said to Jesus in front of the crowd, we do not know. And he said to them, neither would I tell you by what authority I do these things. You didn't meet my condition. I'm not going to give you your answer. But, again, reading between the lines, while I have you here, and the, the conversation continues with Jesus and them being witnessed by the crowd. So Jesus, again, since that seemed to be a little bit too difficult of a question for you, let me give you an easier one. I'm going to dumb it down for you. Verse 28. What do you think? So let's enter. He's going to give us a little three-verse parable, a little short parable. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, the first son answered, I will not. Like what? Wait a minute. Picture that. I don't know what, what kind of household you guys grew up in. <laughs> that didn't work in my house. I never even tried that. That was not an option. So again, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Not going to do it. Don't want to, not going to do it. But Jesus says, afterward, we don't know how long, at some point afterward, he changed his mind and went. That's son number one, verse, 20, verse 30. He went to the other son, the second son, and said the same thing. So we know what that says. He goes to the second son. Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Second son. First son has already said, I will not. Now, he ends up going, changes his mind. He goes to the second, the other son, said the same thing. Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I go, sir. I go. Yes, sir. I'll get right on that. Count, count on me. But Jesus says he did not go. He did not go. So you got the two? Son number one, no, not doing it. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to go. But he ends up going. The other son, yes, sir. Be glad to do it. Anything for you, dad. Love you, but he doesn't go. So verse, since they couldn't handle the first question, Jesus now gives them an easier one. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Okay, good. Got it right. Not a hard question. What does this all mean? Jesus said to them, well, I'm glad we have these, this passage. Otherwise, I would be struggling like what in the world is the point here? Jesus said to them, and they're probably wondering, yeah, we got these two boys. You just told a little story. What's the point? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors. 
Guys, this is the lowest of the low. These are the most hated people in the land. These are the people that, as far as the Jews were concerned, have made a contract with Rome to work for Rome to collect money for the hated, oppressive Roman government. But not only that, you say, well, it has to be done. Somebody's got it. No, no, no. They're told how much to gather, but they go out and purposely deceive and lie and steal and exploit people to get more money for themselves. These are like some of the wealthiest people. It's known this is what you do. You just take advantage of the situation because you have the backing of the Roman government, so they steal from people, in essence. Jesus says, here's the point of his short parable, truly I say to you, who's he talking to? The chief priests and the elders of the people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We know what prostitutes are. They go have sex with people for money. Dozens and dozens and dozens, perhaps over the course of a life, hundreds and hundreds of people. Jesus says the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you, he says to the chief priests and elders. And now we're starting to see, oh wait, I think I see the connection here with these two sons. And if it wasn't clear, verse 32 drives it home. How is that possible? They're going to go, quote, before you. Verse 32, for John came... Oh, John again. For John came to you, to you, chief priests and elders, you saw, he came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. You did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And, so here's time after that, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. You didn't believe initially. They do. And even after them, seeing that, you still refuse to believe. So we've got very clear, obvious two texts that are related that having to do with the authority of Jesus being challenged. So let's go back and study the first section first, verses 23 to 27. Write this down if you're taking notes. A failed challenge to Jesus' authority. A failed challenge to Jesus' authority. As I said, this is day three. Usual rivals with each other. Again, as we have Congress, we have the House of Representatives, we have the Senate, you have Republicans and Democrats and Independents. These people who are rivals normally all unite here in the chief priests and the scribes of the Pharisees and the elders. They unite on one thing. We're normal enemies, but we've got to get on the same page because we've got to do something about Jesus. And they are opposing Jesus. And they come up and it's going to, in their mind, they have a plan and within two or three days they're going to put him on trial and they're going to find him guilty. And sure enough, he will be crucified. We know that that is coming. So I want to start here with a quick thought. First thought, what is motivating this question in verse 23? Look at that again. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? It's a two-part question. What's motivating this? Well, number one, they are appointed as the custodians of the temple. This is part of their job. They're responsible for the things that are happening in the temple, so they, in essence, have the right to ask someone that's doing teaching what, who gives you this authority, and they have an issue with Jesus. Number two, though, I'm, this is my opinion. I'm going to throw it out to you. I believe that they've carefully worded their question because they are building a case against Jesus for an upcoming trial, and the basis which they're going to, quote-unquote, condemn Jesus is for blasphemy. 
So they know that at a previous time in Jerusalem, at another feast, Jesus had made these claims that the Almighty God is his Father. Not like God's the Father of the nation of Israel and he's one of the Israelites. No, God is uniquely his Father, uniquely his Father. He even said one time that he and the Father are one. They're one. He and the Father are one in essence. I think they're trying to pull out of him some, like, self-condemning words. Give us some fresh ammunition for the trial that we're getting ready to have. I think they're trying to bait him. So, one, it's their job. We're the custodians of the temple. Number two, we're trying to bait him into something. But really, number three, they are so aggravated. They cannot believe. They're shocked by the audacity that Jesus keeps doing things in the Passover week. Like what? So, look one more time at verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things? So I'm asking myself as I'm looking this week, what are these things? I know the fourth thing I'm going to have you write would be included. I know there's that, but I'm going to offer you four things that these things mean. Who gives you the authority to do these things? Like what? Number one, I think what they're asking, you purposely rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. You did that, and we know that Jesus did. He sent his disciples, go up there, you'll find two donkeys, bring them to me, and I'm going to ride the one that has never been ridden by a man before. And Jesus, I think their question is, you could have walked into the city of Jerusalem. You were the only one on a donkey. Can I read between the lines? Jesus, your little flunkies that are following you, they don't know the Bible, but it's our job to know the Bible. We know what you did. You're trying to fulfill Zechariah, what we call Zechariah 9-9. They didn't have chapter divisions. You're trying to fulfill that make it look like you're the Christ. Who do you think you are? Where do you get this authority? So they're in their minds, we're the authority, and we've been checking. Have any of you guys given him permission to do that? We've not given this authority. Who has been giving you this authority? Number two, what are they upset about? Him allowing crowds and even children to praise him as the Messiah. Again, not only on the day that he's entering the city of Jerusalem, but also in the day that he cleanses the temple and he heals people. Little boys come up and they start shouting to him, Hosanna, praise, save us now to the the son of David. And they're very upset. Like, what gives you the authority, the right to let people praise you? You know what they're doing. You know what they're implying. Number three, obviously, they're, they're referring to Jesus driving out those who are buying and selling and exchanging money in the temple. Who gives you the right to do that? I'm noticing here as I read this over and over, they don't ask why here. They're wanting to know why you. See, there is no defense for them exploiting God's people and making merchandise in the house of God and turning God's house from a house of prayer into a house of merchandise. There's no defense of that. They can't say you were wrong in doing that. They just want to know what right did you have to do that. And, of course, the obvious one to our text is the fourth thing I would have you write. Who do you think you are teaching in the temple with no rabbinical training? You don't have any rabbinical training. You don't have a degree from any of our rabbis. You've not been to any of our schools. We've checked. We don't know where you get your training from. So who do you think you are? Where would you get your authority? By what authority are you doing these things? So note with me quickly. Guys, Jesus had authority. You say, what kind of authority? I'm thinking back in my mind to chapter number 7, verse number 29. 
It was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and for the Sermon on the Mount was three chapters, and there's this large crowd, and the people concluded when Jesus had finished that, that he spoke with such authority they've never heard anyone teach like that. He does not teach like the scribes of the Pharisees who were the supposed experts. He speaks with authority. In other words, what Jesus said was authoritative. How he says it is authoritative. They would take pride in leaving things open-ended and what do you think about that? And this is an option, that is an option. When Jesus taught, he draws very narrow, clear truths. He speaks as a matter of fact. This, this is the way it is. People have never heard anybody teach like that. He had authority in his teaching. He has authority over disease. He has authority over demons. His enemies here never question that people had demons cast out of them. All they can say is, yes, he has authority to cast out demons, but he gets his authority from Satan. They lied. They were wrong. They didn't want to admit the clear truth. Oh, he has authority. He has authority. Here's what he doesn't have. He doesn't have our sanctioning. He doesn't have our sanctioning. He doesn't have our approval. He doesn't have our training. He has no degrees. He has no letters. What gives you this authority? So Jesus answers that question with his own. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered, I will ask you one question. If you'll, answer, if you'll tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? There's his question. So guys, what we need to do is a brief overview of John's, what's called John's baptism. I think he's talking about John's ministry. If you were to... Ask me, if I had time to think, Jeff, we're now 75% of the way almost through the book of Matthew. Has anything surprised you? If I had time to think, what I'm, this right here surprises me. I did not anticipate this. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised by how often John the Baptist keeps coming up. Have y'all noticed that? I mean, it starts like in chapter 3, I believe it was, and we hardly go anywhere. And like, it's, it's, Jesus keeps bringing it up. And it's like, here's what's going on. Matthew writes about the life of John the Baptist, and here we get an update on that. And then another a couple chapters go by. Jesus keeps bringing it up. That tells me the life. Jesus said there's not been one born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Like, nobody previous to him is greater than him. Not saying necessarily he's the greatest, just none greater than him. Like, he's super important. He, he is apparently, his ministry is way more important than I had ever thought. And I'd been teaching, preaching the Bible all those years. There's something to it. So let's take a moment, write down four aspects of an overview. What is John's ministry about? As we're doing this, please let me encourage you to put yourself in John's ministry and say, how, how do I line up with John's ministry? So what's his ministry? What's his baptism about? Number one, John called people to acknowledge their sin. And change their mind about their sin. So first thing, acknowledge your sin. And along with that, repent of the sin. Change your mind. Don't just say, yes, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. We're all sinners. No, I am a sinner. Have you ever, check yourself. Be honest. Have you ever had that point in time where you have had that conversation with God, where you've had that conversation where you said, God, I am a sinner. And because of my sin, I'm in big trouble. I realize the weight of my sin. It is not a light thing. I can't compare myself with other people who've done worse, this, worse than me. My sin is going to condemn me to hell. My sin. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been there? You need to answer that. Second, John also called for this. Publicly confessing your sin. Publicly. You say, how? By being baptized. That's what he called people in his day to do. So here's what was unusual. And I'm going to give you a separate note in a minute. 
What is unusual about John's baptism is that he's calling Jews. Like if you and I, I'm a Gentile, most of us are Gentiles. Had we lived back then, if we were to go in that time period and we want to become worshipers of the one true God, then we're going to become Jewish there in the Old Testament. To do that, males have to be circumcised, but Gentiles have to be baptized as an acknowledgement that I want to be brought in and I'm acknowledging my sin. John comes along and says Jews need to go public and confess their sins while being baptized. Literally, the Bible said earlier in Matthew, they were being baptized confessing their sins. I get the picture. It's almost like I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a known liar. Or I'm a thief. People just confessing their sins. I'm an adulterer. I'm a this. I have that. I'm an abuser. I'm a reviler. I'm a blasphemer. And here they, they're getting baptized. Number three, what does it call for? Very important to John. I want to ask you this this morning. It'll come up later in the message. John calls for people, do not settle for less than a life that exhibits repentance. Don't settle for less than a life that actually exhibits you really did repent. So that's following up. Don't just say, yeah, I know my sin. I went public and confessed my sin. John was big on this. Does the life you now live show that you really did change your mind about your sin? Or you just like went public, said a few things. You know some things in your head and your life never changes. No, you need to have a life that matches. You need to have fruits of repentance. Big with John. It's big with John. And then the greatest of them all. You have to believe what John said about Jesus. You have to believe. John's ministry obviously points to the Lord. What did he say about Jesus? I can't re-preach all that John taught and preached. John says there's one coming. Hey, John, are you the Christ? They want to know. No, I'm not the Christ. There's one coming after me who is mightier than I am. He he talks about the pre-existence of Jesus. He says, the one that I'm talking about, he was before me. Now, wait a minute. No, no, John, if you're pointing to him, that's your cousin, Jesus. You were born six months before him. Yeah, humanly speaking, I'm six months older than my cousin. But he existed in eternity past is what he's saying. Then second, the third thing he says, this is the Lamb of God. So John is all about Jesus. You have to believe what John says about Jesus. Do you see Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Son of God? This is the ministry of John. Write this down. One of the unique things about John that I alluded to a while ago is that he called for even Jews to be baptized. Why? He preached a confession of, of, of Jews to a realization that just being Jewish is not sufficient, is not enough to help them escape the judgment. In other words, I realize, he's, he's calling Jews to like, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I stand in judgment unless I repent of my sin and confess my sin to God and put my faith and trust in God and his word at that time. And now we know we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Unless I do that, I'm in trouble. I cannot look back and say, oh, it's okay. I'm a descendant of Abraham. So John was unique, and this was very offensive to many people in his day. So as we kind of wind down this first point, notice what Jesus does. He's asking this. Oh, you want to know where I get my authority? You answer my question, I'll answer yours. Here's my question. The ministry of John, from heaven or from man, let me rephrase it. Is John the Baptist a true prophet or no? Question, did John the Baptist's ministry bring people closer to God or was it fake? 
Did John the Baptist minister, what I want you guys to answer this question, did John the Baptist ministry have the power of God on it? Did he have the favor of God on it? Or was it just man-made, man-concocted? All drummed up by him. I need you to answer that question. Now, at, the, at first reading, most of us read that and we're thinking, okay, that's kind of a random question. They come up want to know where Jesus gets his authority and who gave it to him. He comes up with this counter question, and we're thinking that's a random question. Or this is an evasionary tactic. He's evading their question. He doesn't want to answer, so he gives this question that he knows is going to put them in a dilemma, right? Is that what Jesus is doing? He's simply giving them a question that he knows is going to put it awkward for them to answer honestly in front of the crowd, and that's all he's doing because he doesn't want to answer the question. Guys, it's a lot more than that. It's more than that. It's not just evading. It's not like we see when we try to watch the news. Good luck. Those of you that can actually watch it for 30 minutes, you're a lot better than me. I can only take about four minutes at a time before I start talking back at the news channel. So then I'll flip over to another one, and there will last about two minutes on that one. I'm start shouting at those other five channels. Anyway, that won't give too much away. I get very frustrated with them, right? So is this just simply a gotcha moment? Oh, you want to know Baptism of John, from heaven or from, or, or from man? <laughs> gotcha. That's not what's happening. Write this thought down. You'll need to hear it over and over a little bit in your mind when you go home. Jesus links the right answer to his question about John in verse 25 to actually being part of his answer to their question. So this is not random. It's not like unattached. It is actually linked. There's a reason that Jesus asks about John when they're asking about his authority. Jesus links his question. I'm sorry. He links the right answer to his own question in verse 25 as being part of his answer to their question back in verse 23. Why? Write this thought down. He links the answer. In other words, like, guys, if you will get the answer right to my question about John, then you will have the answer to your question about me. It's not the full answer. Jesus could just go off and say, where do I get my authority? Um, I'm the eternal word of God who was with God in the beginning. I am God. God and I are one. I'm the eternal son of God. Need I go further? He doesn't do that. He says, oh, You answer my question, and you will have one of the answers to your question. Where do I get my authority? It comes from this. Write this down. John points to Jesus, as I alluded to earlier, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and as the Son of God. John the Baptist literally points and says, behold, points to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And is this not the Son of God? John says. So it's real simple at the end of the day. If John really is a true prophet and his ministry is from heaven and he points to Jesus, then all questions are over. They don't need to ask where Jesus got his authority from. You can just settle that right now. Because, guys, it's pretty clear. If there is a person on earth who can legitimately feel the title as the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, And the one who feels the title, the Son of God, well, you better believe he has every right to be teaching in the temple. He has the right to cleanse the temple. He has the right to ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey as Jerusalem's king. Yes, he has the right if John's a true prophet. Yes or no, true prophet or for man. We don't like you. we got to confer. Time out. We need to talk. And so Jesus, in this, is pointing out to them, you know why you're wrong on me? 
Hey, pay attention here. This is going to come up again in a minute. You know why you're wrong on me? Because you were wrong on John. Wrong on John has led you to be wrong on me. So Jesus has turned the tables. They think they, they, they've worked all night on this. How are we going to word it? Who's going to talk? I'll do the talking. Okay, here they go. <laughs> we got a big one here. We got him trapped. No, you got nothing. Now, the only reason they wouldn't say, it's from heaven. We don't really believe that, but we don't want to make them mad. Let's appease the crowds. It's from heaven. They know if they say that his ministry is from heaven, Jesus wins. Because Jesus is going to say, well, then why don't you believe John? If you believe John, you'd know who I am. They also know they can't say it's from man because they'll lose. If we say it's from man, they lose because the crowds are going to be angry. And this crowd represents bigger crowds. The nation thinks John is a true prophet. So they can't say, did you catch how I just worded that? had a friend years ago. He was with the Lord. He was a lot older than I am. But you never wanted to let Jack Dean do the coin flip. Because before he did the coin flip, he'd say this. All right, heads I win, tails you lose. Here we go. Ready? Boom. And I'm like, say, what, what did what'd you just say? Heads I win, tails you lose. Boom. And he flips the coin. Oh, tails you lose. Flip it again. Heads I win. He's worried. They're in a, they're in a dilemma. This, this, this is no good. Your question is no good. If we say that John's ministry is from heaven with the power of God on it, well, then you're going to win. And if we say it's of man, then we're going to lose. Yeah, exactly. And you know what they do? They cower out. Look at verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Now, that's amazing. And I'm almost done with this point. This is an amazing thing. This really is amazing. Israel has not had a true, recognized, definable, no doubt about it, prophet from God in how long? 400 years. The experts can't figure out that the true prophet of God that's as great as any they've ever had is in their midst. He's been operating 25 miles away down at the River Jordan. They go down to see it, and they can't discern if he has the power of God on his ministry or not. They can't figure that out. That's a big problem. You guys have problems. And you're the leaders of our people. And so they answer in verse 27, we do not know. I used to play chess when I was in high school. I don't play anymore. If you want to play chess, play with Jeff Gilreath. I hear he loves to play chess. If this for chess, you know what this is? This is where you've got someone in such a place where if they move here or here or here, it's checkmate, and they respond this way. I'm still thinking about it. Go ahead and make your move. You want to move there? I'll let you move any one of them. Move all of them. Because, no, I'm just not ready to move. Oh, you're not going to move. Or the old bump the thing, bump the thing we did that when we were kids oh did the pieces get messed up we got to start all over really that's what they did and some of us may be thinking well Jeff actually isn't Jesus doing the same thing because look at the end of verse 27 neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things isn't Jesus doing the same thing that we're frustrated with them doing guys here's the difference they will not answer because they're afraid Jesus does not avoid answering because he's afraid. Jesus avoids answering because he's wanting to ensure that his trial and death happens exactly on the time frame that he and his father had already determined in eternity past. He's in control of the whole situation. He's not afraid. He knows he dies this week. He just doesn't die this day. Number two, let's notice this. Let's learn some lessons from two sons. Lessons from two sons.
Look at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same thing. Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. So, guys, the first son, in essence, as I pointed out already, is basically saying, I don't care what you say. I pay attention because these people represent. When we tell parables, Jesus tells parables, they represent something. The first son tells the father, I don't care what you want. I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want to do what you want to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, the good news is that this son had a change of mind, and then he went. It ought to be worse in our culture, because in that culture, if someone disrespected their father like that, this was a shameful, shameful thing. Very shameful. You not only disobey your father, but you disrespect him by saying, I will not do this in advance. Extremely shameful. So I want to ask you guys a slightly different version, in fact, a very different version of Jesus' question. Now, Jesus' question for them in verse 31 was, which of the two sons, which of the two did the will of the father? I want to ask you guys a different question. So here's my question. You've heard, heard the story. Son number one, go work in the vineyard. No, I will not. Son number two, son, go work in the vineyard. Okay, I will. I go, sir. But he doesn't. The first son says no, but eventually goes. My question for you this morning is, which one is the good son? Neither. So let's don't lose sight of that. Obviously, we're going to say some good things about the first son, but no one needs to walk away this morning thinking, I want to be like the first son. That's how I want to live my life. That is not the point. This is not an endorsement of the first son. So what's going on here? The first son, he can't be the good son because he's disrespected his father and disobeyed his father, though he does, thankfully, after some time, change his mind and actually goes and works. But he's never going to get back the disrespect. He's never going to get back the time that he lost, that he disobeyed. Can't have that back. It surely can't be the second son because the second son lied to his father and also disobeyed his father. He spoke respectfully. He talks well to the father and about the father. He just doesn't actually do anything. So he can't be the good son either. And that's where, as I'm looking at this, I'm really thankful, as I mentioned in the first reading, that Jesus says to them what this means. Because if I didn't have verses 31 and 32, I'd probably do like some folks do, and I'd probably be like, who's the Gentiles and who's the Jews? This is not about Jews and Gentiles. Which one of the sons represents us and which one of the sons represents the nation of Israel? This is not about the nation of Israel and Gentiles. This is about the Israelite, the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership, and this is about sinners. So thankfully, Jesus tells us the interpretation. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you the, briefly the interpretation of the passage, and then let's step back and let's say, what are some clear, timeless principles that we can take home with us that are taken out of this three-verse parable. What is the interpretation? Well, let's start here. Jesus makes it clear. This father, this is not hard. The father represents who? God. Yeah, you write that down. You got that in your notes. So the father here represents God. He gives commands. He's in charge, tells people. God tells people how to live life. This father tells the two sons to go work in the vineyard. The father very clearly represents God. Now, the, the first son I want you to note that I'm going to be specific in how we're going to talk about him. The first son represents blatant sinners. Blatant 
sinners. Not just sinners. Hey, we're all sinners. Everybody, all of us outside of the Lord Jesus are born in sin and we commit acts of sin. We gravitate towards sin. We like sin. I'm included. That is all of us. But what this group is very specific, this represents blatant sinners who don't even pretend to care what God wants. Don't even pretend to care what God wants. Doesn't matter to them. In that day, if you became a tax collector, a publican, what you were saying, everybody knows, you're a tax collector? Yeah. Are you like all the rest? Look at my clothes. Look at my house. I'm doing well. Oh, you cheat and lie and steal and exploit God's people. Whatever works. What are you? A prostitute. These are, this is not like if anybody sees a prostitute just standing out on the street side, this person in essence is saying, I don't care what God says. I don't care what God wants. Now, we're all sinners, but this is very specific, very public. We don't care who knows that we don't care what God wants. That's what this group represents. So then who does the second son represent? Second son represents religious people and moral people who speak very well about God. They speak well about God. Nice things to him, apparently, as if they're speaking to him. Nice things about him. The problem is they never actually obey God. And that's obviously representing the chief priests and elders in this text. They're religious. They're moral. They talk well about God, have a lot of knowledge, earthly knowledge. They just don't actually obey what God says. They're like the second son. So with that as our simple, just simple interpretation, oh, okay, the first son represents the tax collectors and prostitutes and other blatant sinners. And the second son represents these chief priests and elders. And the father represents God. So what are some timeless, when we say timeless principle, guys, what we're talking about is something that's true today. It'll be true in 100 years. It was true 500 years ago. It was true 2,000 years ago. What is true? Number one, we're looking at this. What can we glean? Number one, performance is better than promises. Performance is better than empty promises. We could say it another way. Even, ladies and gentlemen, even delayed obedience is better than no obedience. That's one of our lessons. Even delayed obedience, hear me now, though not ideal, delayed obedience is not when we hear God tell us to do something... God wants us to do it, but if there is disobedience that ultimately leads to obedience, delayed obedience, eventual performance is better than promises. But I said I'm going to do it, but you never actually did it. How often do folks finish a sermon here when we kind of evaluate a sermon and let's drive home and we have conversations with God? How often do folks leave on a Sunday having told the Lord, I'm going to do this and this and this is going to change, and God, by your help, help me do this, and they go out and they don't change? So one of the questions we need to ask ourselves, do we keep our word? So we have saying and we have doing. Saying is great. Saying's fine. Doing is better than saying. We have well said. Man, that was well said. There's well said and there's well done. Chuck used to use that phrase all the time when, when he was coaching. When one of his players did something, well done. Well done. Well done is better than well said. What is great when you say you're going to do it and you actually do it. That's the goal. Now, before I hit the second thought, I want to be careful. I mentioned this a while ago. This parable is not an endorsement of the first son. 
Remember, the father, rep- the father here represents God. The son here represents blatant sinners who just disregard the father. So he breaks it down. They end up representing publicans and prostitutes. The first son. So I'm going to hit this fast and we're going to hear our second thought. You ready? Watch. Jesus is showing us in this parable that a life of lying, a life of deceiving people, a life in your business practices where you intentionally exploit people and deceive people, take advantage because you can, when we do that, whether it be them, tax collectors then, or people today, even Christians who think it's okay, I'm just trying to make a profit, if we take advantage and exploit people and lie and deceive, what we're in essence doing is saying, God, I don't care about you. I don't care what you say. I don't care about your word. I want to do what I want to do. I want to make some money. And on the flip side of that, if anyone chooses to live a life of sexual sin, a life of sexual sin is in essence saying, God, I, I'm, I'm ignoring you. I don't care about you. I know what your word says. I know what you've put in my heart. I get convicted and I have my bad conscience and that's why I hide what I'm doing whether I'm saved or not, but I don't care about you. I'm going to still do what I want to do. That's what that lifestyle is saying. So this is not an endorsement of the first. The the thing about the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the first son, it took them a while, but eventually they did change their mind and their actions. Number two, now what you're about to write, y'all are going to say, Jeff, we already know this, and that's why it's so difficult for us to try to teach something that was, in their day, shocking. This was brand new information, and you're going to write this down and think, yep, I already know that. Put yourself back in that time period before they knew the, the literal wording of this. Write this thought. What are we to learn? God is merciful to any, that's a key word, any sinner who repents. I know that's simple. You say, Jeff, you preach that every week. I understand that. That is one of the main lessons of this text. God is merciful. This is good news. This is why we call it the gospel. God is merciful to any, any sinner who truly repents. Guys, one of the cornerstones of Christianity, so here at first, no sin is too bad. Like no sin, tax collectors, prostitutes, No sin is too bad. No amount of sin is too great, too much for God to forgive when we repent and when we trust Him. I know those are simple thoughts and we repeat them often, but there's a reason we say them because we we have to be able to back them up from Scripture, and this is a passage where we would draw that from. Look at 1 John chapter 1 on the screen, verse 9. I know this is familiar, but just... Act like you haven't heard this before. Like, let it impact you fresh. The Bible promises, God's Word promises, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful. He always does it. He is faithful and just. So He has the right to do this. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does not just forgive and leave us in our sins. He forgives our sin. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In fact, I didn't put it on the screen, but verse 7 at the end of that, 1 John 1, 7 finishes by saying, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Emphasis there, there is no sin that is too great. None. None. You say, even 
tax collectors. That doesn't strike us. You guys may think, I don't really care for IRS agents. This is not the same thing. It's not even close. Your issue, if you have an issue with them, your issue is with the, with the politicians who vote taxes. These people are just collecting. In their day, these people were robbing God's own people to send money in their minds to the enemy, but really to make themselves really wealthy. They were cheaters. I mean, they were the most hated. And as I said before, you have those that were prostitutes. They were hated. In fact, R.T. France words it this way. He says, these are the people, talking about tax collectors and prostitutes. He says, so this one you got to hear. So be ready. France writes, these are the people whom the chief priests and elders of the people would most despise. These could, they would most despise and most heartily thank God that they were not like. This is them. We know about the tax, we know about the, the Pharisee who stands in the temple. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, and I'm not like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector's over there praying, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. This is it. France is saying these two types of people that Jesus just pointed out, these are the people that would be most despised and that the Pharisee, that the chief priests and elders would most heartily thank God that they're not like them. He continues. Now here's where it gets a little trickier. Grant's right, so when Jesus speaks not only of their, tax collectors and prostitutes, when Jesus speaks not only of their entering God's kingdom, but also going in first, he is making no less radical pronouncement, a no less radical pronouncement than when he spoke back in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of heaven to sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while the sons of the kingdom found themselves on the outside. I was reading this before I read that note, and I was reading this this week, what Jesus says in verse 31, and I probably thought, wow, when he says, truly I say to you, what's the point of the two sons here? I'm telling you, religious leaders, I'm telling you that the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I, I thought this. That's probably the most shocking thing they've ever heard. That's got to be right up there with him saying that God and I are one. The Father and I are one. Like, man, that's blasphemous. And this, this is ludicrous. What are you saying? These people. They're not even going to get in, much less ahead of us. But then I remembered what chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 said. And it would, I don't know which is worse. One guy offered this. As shocked as they would be that Gentiles... Gentiles are going to get into the kingdom and sit down at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while the sons of the kingdom, the Israelites, are on the outside, those who don't put their faith and trust in Jesus, they're on the outside looking in. That's shocking to them. This probably may be more shocking. Here's why. Well, at least the Gentiles that are like the centurion where that was said in chapter 8 have great faith. I guess if they have great faith in God, like that centurion was known to be a good man, I can almost see them, but... Prostitutes and tax collectors, never. That's their mindset, never. One more thing out of verse 31. Look at verse 31 again. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes, go into the kingdom of God before you. So if this was the only passage we had in Scripture, we might come to a different conclusion, but it is not. Ladies and gentlemen, that phrase, before you, does not mean, I guess eventually, these religious leaders of Israel get into the kingdom. 
even though they're unbelievers. I guess these unbelieving religious leaders of Israel get in, they're just going to have to wait their turn and come in at the end. I guess that's what Jesus is saying. No, that's not what he's saying. This is a case of what we've been talking about a couple months ago. The last will be first, and the first will be last. What this is, what Jesus is saying, when they'll go before you, is in a total shocking twist to human theology. Here's literally what's going to happen. The worst, you got to hear the whole thing, the worst of sinners who repent go to heaven. And the most religious, most moral people who do not repent and trust Christ go to hell. That, that's literally what the Bible's teaching. I know we say it a lot because it's saturated in your mind. The worst of the worst. What I am telling you, it is highly likely that someone sitting here this morning who lives a pretty good life and they're fairly faithful to church are going to be like a lot of other people. They're going to go to eternity and they're going to be totally shocked when people in this life who were formerly liars, like well-known liars, thieves, addicts, like everybody knows they're an addict. Everybody knows they're drunk. Everybody knows they're an abuser. Everybody knows they're homosexual. Everybody knows they've committed murder. Everybody knows they're an adulterer. Like everybody, everybody at the workplace knows they're doing it. It aggravates them. They're, they're, they're famous for this. Here's what's going to shock people is that many very religious, very moral, who've never trusted Christ are going to be shocked when those kinds of people who were formerly that sinful, blatantly sinful in this life, are in powerful positions in eternity and trophies of grace simply because at some point, though later, not ideal, but though later in life, they eventually did surrender to God's will, put their faith and trust in Jesus, repented of their sin, and received free salvation. It's going to be shocking. This is the most shocking thing these people have ever heard in their life. Number three, very brief. This is clear from the text. It's clear from John the Baptist's ministry that we've been referring to, and it's clear from the first son. Changing our mind leads to changing our behavior. Changing our mind leads, we could almost say always leads, to changing our behavior. I'll be brief here. Here's why. The first son said, I will not. I'm not going to go work in the vineyard. I don't want to do what you say. I'm going to do what I want to say. So he doesn't for a time, but he ultimately he changed his mind, and when he changed his mind, he got up and went and worked in the vineyard. When our mind really changes, ladies and gentlemen, it will come out in the life. It will come out in the life. Hey, guys, a changed life is the most obvious evidence that you have truly repented of your sins and that you have truly trusted Jesus and that God's Holy Spirit has come in your life. A changed life is the greatest evidence of God being in your life. It's the greatest. You say, what about lots of Bible knowledge and lots of religious activity and faithful attendance at Grace View? Those are great things. I want you to keep coming. Hope you gain a lot of Bible knowledge and implement it into your life. That's what we should all be striving for. But somebody can do all of those things and ultimately not really have a changed life. I'm not going to re-preach last week's message. I really want to. Can I remind you? Three kinds of fruit. All true Christians produce spiritual fruit. That fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. So I invite you again. Has your life been changed? Can you honestly say, where there was no love, I now have love for God, love for other people, love for lost people, love for the church, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faithfulness, temperance. Can you honestly say, I have in my life the fruit of praise to God, 
I am one who praises God. If you don't praise God in your heart, something is wrong. You should be questioning, has my life really changed? Do you have the fruit of holiness? Not just outward how you dress and the words you use and how you fix your hair. Again, what I'm saying, how you live your life, what is the most important things to you? Is it any different from how this world lives? Oh, boy, where'd that thought just come from? I better not. I can get in trouble for that because I love sports as much as anybody. And I know what time of the year it is. And there's nothing wrong with sports, and I'm not preaching against sports. But if our whole mood and attitude is governed by whether or not some 20- and 21-year-old kids win a ball game or not, that's just how the world lives. They live that way. We should be different. We can be interested and cheer, and I do that. As I've said, I pray sometimes that the Lord will help the Patara Hills. It sure didn't work Friday night. Wow. What a... Ah. Does that ruin my week? No. No. They'll probably lose again next week. I, I am not going to be like the world. Like, oh, woo, it's a great year. Why? We won. Oh, that's great. That is great. But that's one little thing. It's one little thing. Do we, do we value things that the world doesn't value? And do we oppose things that they love? That wasn't planned. Sorry about that. Anyway, number three, four. Let's hit the last one. This is a big part of verse 32, and this is where we'll close this morning. Rejection of clear truth hinders perception of more truth. It's one of the main things of the text. Rejection of clear truth. You reject, ladies and guys, you reject clear truth of God and you're not going to be able to perceive future truth like you should. If I could say it this way, in mathematics, if you have a major miscalculation or even a minor miscalculation earlier in the formula, as you make your way down, you're going to reach wrong conclusions down here. That's what they've done. Look at verse 32. How can Jesus say that that group of people is going to go into the kingdom in the place of the religious leaders? Here's why. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So John came, you didn't believe him. Do y'all see that? True revelation. The man of God came. He literally was telling the prophet of God, as great as has ever been prophet from, from John's time previously. He came and spoke God's word, and you guys blew it. This is what Jesus is saying. You're wrong on me because you were first wrong on John. You missed it there, and you're paying. Again, that math, you miss it up here. You're going to miss it down here. He's trying to show them when you rejected him, that's why you are now. I don't know if he's here this morning. A gentleman named Jeff that's been coming to our church asked me a question the other day. He's like, Jeff, Jeff and Jeff, we're on the phone. He's like, how can he do that? Like, how could people reach these conclusions where mankind kills the Son of God? I just don't understand. What in my, this is it. When you choose to be blind, when you choose unbelief because you're choosing your pride, that's going to cause you to have miscalculations. Hear the point again. Rejection of clear truth will hinder you from perception of future or more truth. Reject clear truth. You're not going to perceive future truth. Let me illustrate. Somebody's not a Christian. They want to know about God. They pick up the Bible and they start reading. What are they going to find in Genesis chapter 1? By the way, you better be right on Genesis or you're going to screw up the whole Bible. You better be right on Genesis. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can't attach to that truth, you're going to really struggle. There is a God, and he is the creator of all things. you got to settle that. You miss that, you're going to miss the Bible. That's why people believe in evolution, because they've missed the first original truth of, of, of the Bible. There is a God, and he's the creator. Once you understand that, then you know since he's the creator, he gets to decide the purpose of life. If you don't believe that truth, you reject it, then you're going to believe untruths like evolution, which is going to lead you to this conclusion. Since we evolved, we get to decide the essence of life. We get to decide the meaning and purpose of life. I get to decide, no, that's all wrong. There is a creator. It goes further than that. In the beginning, he, God, created them, male and female. God created male and female. You screw that up, you're going to join this crowd that believes there's like 70 genders. All this gender identity, crazy. No! Y'all's belief system is a result of the curse. The Bible says God created male and female. That's the way it is. That's what we need to line up with. Sometimes it even hits other things. One of the reasons why we may struggle with something like eternal security. Can I lose, if I really have salvation, can I lose it ever? If you think you can, it's because you don't understand in its essence, a previous doctrine, the doctrine of grace. You didn't do anything to save yourself. God saved you in spite of all your wickedness, and he saved you knowing the worst that you're going to do over here. And so once we understand grace, that leads me to the conclusion, wow, when he says eternal life, he means eternal life. So when we reject this truth, we're going to pay for it down the line. Don't reject the truth. Boy, I spent too long on that. Real quickly, John 7. Let's finish. Sort of. John 7. This is our last text. This will bear that point out. John chapter 7. This is a different feast. This is in the fall, a different fall. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, September, October. And people are hearing Jesus teach in the temple, and they're like, again, they're amazed. Like, man, where does he get this stuff? He's not, he doesn't teach like our people. Where does he get his learning, his letters from? So notice I'm going to read verse 16, but we're heading to 17. 17 will be on the screen. Watch, listen to verse 16. So Jesus answering them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Oh, you want to know where I got all the stuff that I'm saying? Because he's so original and he was so on point and so authoritative. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My father sent me. That's what he's saying. Now watch verse 17 because it makes the point that we're finishing with. If anyone's will, your will is to do God's will. If your will is to do God's will, when I know God's will, I will do it. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Did you catch that? Jesus says, if your desire, if you are surrendered to God's will, when you hear, if that's the case, when you hear me teach, Jesus says, you'll know that I am sent from God. Now, if your will is, I want to hear what God's will is and I'll decide if I'm going to do it or not, you're going to struggle in being able to discern, is Jesus the man of God or not? Is he a true prophet? Is he the Christ? Is he the son of God? The reason they struggled with this, now as we finish back at verse 32, hear it one more time. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. And there's the problem. They couldn't discern Jesus' authority because they rejected God's clear revelation that he had already sent in John There's a specific phrase I want to hit in verse 32. John came to you in the way of righteousness. 
You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Now, they started rough, but eventually, like the first sign, they had the change of mind. But he says to the chief priests and elders, even when you saw it, when you saw it, so I'm asking, what is it? What did they see? He says, when you saw it, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. You didn't change your mind and believe before, and even when you saw it. So I asked myself, Jeff, what is the it? So I wrote this down. The it is they saw the righteous life of John the Baptist, a godly man. You can't pin him down on his life, man. He is, he's as godly as there's ever been on the planet. They saw the righteous life of John. They saw the baptism of John. They saw that he's calling people to repent of their sins. They saw tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and centurions coming and repenting before God and getting baptized and calling out and confessing their sins. Over here stands the chief priests and the elders watching all of this, evaluating all of this, probably arms crossed, eyebrow raised. They're watching all of this. And here's the thing. They're watching people's lives are being changed by the power of the ministry of John the Baptist that has God's power and favor on it. Literally, these people who have all this sin, they're not living that way anymore. Their lives are changed, and they're watching this. And Jesus says, even after seeing all that, you still rejected the truth. You chose not to believe. So here's my conclusion. When they heard John's message that being a Jew, I, I really think this is this group's problem. They heard John's message that being a Jew is not sufficient for eternal life. Pride flared up. They're proud of their heritage. I have Abraham's blood. And John says, really? Do you not know that God can take stones and raise up children to Abraham? You better have more than that when you stand before God. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. My grandfather is a pastor. Oh, that's great. Mine was too. No, 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 you don't understand. My mama taught Sunday school, and my daddy this, and either I'm a pastor. Doesn't matter when you stand before the Lord. You better have something more than what you've done or whose kid you are. God doesn't have grandkids. God only has kids. He has children, and all of them have put their faith and trust in his one and only begotten son of God, the Lord Jesus. That's the way. So I finish with sprawl. You see in notes, the last note's going to be the end. So kind of hear the whole thing first. It'll be the end that you'll write. Sproul says of this group, their problem was, he says, when the Father required them to go to the River Jordan and to be baptized, they would not. They were not willing to publicly acknowledge themselves as sinners. Like, we're not doing that. That's why you don't know who Jesus is. That's why you're going to put him to death two or three days later. Sproul writes the following. So you catch it? They're proud. They're too proud to acknowledge and admit their sin. Sproul writes, quote, it is often said the church is full of hypocrites. No, the church is full of sinners. Can I add this? Not in his quote. The church is full of sinners. I'm in the church. The church is full of sinners who are saved by grace and are therefore called saints who are yet still imperfect but are going to be glorified in the next life. And we will be perfect. But we are growing in our holiness until now by the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we yield to the Word of God. So that's the truth. Now let me back up and read it again because I added that last part. It's full of sinners, but sinners saved by grace who are called saints, though yet still imperfect. Now here's what he writes. It's often said the church is full of hypocrites. No, the church is full of sinners. Only people who claim not to be sinners are hypocrites. And then he finishes. 
I know of no organization other than the church that requires members to publicly declare themselves to be sinners to be able to join before they can join. You say, I want to join, I want to join Grace View. Have you ever publicly taken the action step that says, I'm a sinner? Oh, no, I'm not doing that. What was that again? Yeah, you got to get up in the water. And by getting up in the water, the water's not going to save you. They won't have any magic water or spiritual water here. But by getting up there, you're saying, I'm a sinner, and I stand in need of a Savior, but I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is my Savior and my Lord. And by His grace, I intend to obey Him with my life. Again, imperfectly, but He's my Lord and Savior. Oh, I'm not doing that. That'd be admitting I'm a sinner. Then you can't be part of the church. You are not part of the church. You're not on your way to heaven. Heads bowed, eyes closed. So my question for all of us this morning is, have you done that? Anyone watching online, have you done that? Ladies and gentlemen, every person who goes to heaven, all who go to heaven, must have a point in their life. I mean, the Old Testament, during the time of Christ, and since the time of Christ on earth. Literally, all who make it to heaven must have a point in their life where they've had a deep change of mind. I mean, a deep change of mind about your sin, where you acknowledge your sin, and you're like, my sin is a problem, and you talk to God about your sin. Everybody goes to heaven has done this. If you're sitting here saying, I have never had a conversation with God about my sin, then you are not on your way to heaven. You're actually on your way to hell. And that is a fact of Scripture. All who go to heaven hit a point in their life where they've changed their mind about their sin. They see it and acknowledge it. They change their mind so much that they actually see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to give to God. Bankrupt. Totally bankrupt. And I am in need of Jesus to save me. So I'm asking you this morning, if you have never done that, why don't you have that conversation with the Lord this morning? Why don't you confess your sins? Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, Jeff, man, that sounds nice. You don't know how bad I feel about all the things I've done. But Jeff, you don't understand. I've done some really, really bad things. And just a few people know about it or maybe no one knows about it. I haven't had to pay for it yet. Somebody may be listening saying, if, if people knew what I've done, I'd be in prison right now. And I don't think God could save me. Well, here's what I want to remind you. One of the main points of our text was that God is merciful to any sinner who truly repents. I want you to hear me. No matter what you have done, God forgives all who ask him. God forgives all who ask him. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? That's the question. The only way to be saved is by faith. So I'm asking any, I'm not going to have you raise your hand. Right where you're at, watching online, sitting here this morning, I'm asking you this question. Do you believe that if you were to ask God to forgive you of your sins and let the death of Jesus on the cross count for you, if you were to ask him, God, I am acknowledging my sin. I am sorry for my sin. Please apply Jesus' death to take away my sins. Do you think he would do that? This is, up, this, is, this, is, this is the line. Do you trust God's word? Do you think he would do that? So Jeff, that's just one verse. Well, the Bible says 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question is, do you think God is telling the truth or do you think God might be lying and he won't save you or you're that special, you're that unusual? No, he won't save me. If you doubt him, you can't be saved. But if you believe him, then you could do that right now. Right now, you just talk to the Lord. Just talk to him. God, talk to him. God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin. God, I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. Ask him this and mean it and then take it. Tell God this. God, I believe Jesus' death on the cross was for my sins and is enough. Tell him that. It's enough. God, it's enough to pay for all my sins. And then tell him this. God, I receive your salvation. I receive it right now because you cannot lie. If you do that, your name is written in the book of life, never to be erased. So just before I pray, I want to ask the rest of us, have you ever gone public with your confession and your profession of faith? Have you ever gone public? Have you ever been baptized? You say, Jeff, I am a Christian. Have you ever been baptized? Or has pride kept you out? Has your life been changed? Do you have the fruit, the evidence in your life of repentance what are you doing now that you didn't do before you became a Christian if you say Jeff I know I'm a Christian what is in your life now that wasn't there before that's what we need to ask ourselves because John's message was don't settle for less than a life that exhibits true repentance and lastly be honest is there a doctrine in the Bible that you've seen before and it seemed really clear but you didn't like it I don't like it and it kind of keeps showing up again and again and you've been rejecting it and God is convicting you of that right now if so I want to invite you approach God's word with a heart determined to receive his truth even if it means changing your beliefs you're going to let the word of God win Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Father, I thank you for these folks. Thank you for their patience. Thank you for their listening, their desire, their support. Lord, I pray that though all of us would have to admit we've, in essence, lived like the first son, we've disobeyed you. But Lord, thank you for the day where you helped us see our sin and change our mind. Lord, I pray that we'll now go out into the vineyard that is in this world still, that you want us to, even now in this phase of your kingdom, that is yet unconsummated on the earth. But Lord, you want us to now go work. Help us to know that you want your children to work in the vineyard, to work in your kingdom, to further advance the name of Jesus. May we right now commit to do that for your pleasure, for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.